Well, this morning, I want to ask a quick question before we get started, and that is, what might come to the forefront of your mind if I were to mention the word unforgiveness? That is, forgiveness withheld. And I imagine that doubtless, for many of us, there's certain situations and maybe relationships that quickly rise to the surface in our minds. Uh, maybe there is someone that you have not forgiven, a resentful relationship that you're still holding on to, or maybe you're the one who needs to be pursuing forgiveness from somebody you know. And maybe this triggers a memory from 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Maybe it reminds you of your car ride here. As I hear sometimes couples bicker, even on a Sunday morning. Well, Hollywood has picked up on the fact that unforgiveness is a great drama because it doesn't just stand alone as its own sin. It's not an island. But unforgiveness typically brings wrath, bitterness, revenge, and so on. All the things that might make for a great blockbuster, right? And we could pick on Hollywood all day long, but even before that, 500 years ago, William Shakespeare, uh, the great Renaissance play writer, picked up on the, the human draw towards revenge, unforgiveness, wrath. And he writes one of the most popular plays ever written in Hamlet. And if you're not familiar with the great play of Hamlet, uh, basically, in a nutshell, King Hamlet is murdered, and it's not known how he died, but his ghost appears to his son, Prince Hamlet. And it's revealed to the young prince that he was murdered by his uncle. And at first, young Hamlet is a little bit skeptical of all of this. After all, how, how reliable is a ghost's testimony? However, things are clarified later on in his life when he notices his mother is now romantically involved with his uncle, and one day, Hamlet stumbles upon his uncle trying to pray privately. He's silent, and he hears his own confession because his uncle is tormented by what he did. He's in turmoil, confessing murdering his own brother to get to the throne. And Hamlet, rather than entering into that and having a conversation, confronting his uncle, this confirmation sets him on a journey of all-out revenge. Long story short, eventually he will kill his uncle, but it's not without tragedy along the way. Along the way, his girlfriend, Ophelia, will die, Along the way, his mother will die, and in the end, shortly after, like minutes after he actually kills his uncle, Hamlet himself will die from the battle between the two of them. And it's no wonder why the longer title of the play Hamlet is called The Tragedy of Hamlet. Now, for some of you men out there, Tom, who aren't really into plays and dramas. I don't know, Tom, if you're into plays and dramas, but for some of you men who are, you just look like a tough guy, I don't know. For some of you guys are, are like Shakespeare, ew, gross. Think John Wick. 
right? That's, that's all I got to say. If you know, you know. Just there you go. That's for you guys. These are stories that make for great movies, great blockbusters, but unfortunately what we don't often hear is their opposite. And those are stories of radical, unbelievable forgiveness. Stories like that of the Hutu and the Tutsis tribe of Rwanda in Africa, where in 1994, Hutu militias began a mission to exterminate all of the Tutsis. For 100 days, they raided villages, shooting and hacking their way across the country, and in the end, killing more than 800,000 people. And astoundingly, they were not people from other countries, across seas, or who even looked different. They were neighbors. They were friends to the Tutsis, something that you would think would never be imaginable. There was a young boy named John Claude who at this time, being a part of the Tutsis clan, 11 years old, escaped and hid in a bush. And through the leaves, terrified and trembling, he witnessed them capturing his father, torturing his father, mutilating him, and ultimately slaughtering him to death. If that weren't enough, he then witnessed the murder of his sister, followed by his aunts, followed by his uncles, and he would watch his mother be brutally beaten, and though she would survive, she would have mental disabilities the rest of her life. And if all that weren't enough, a ministry, compassion, takes in a bunch of orphans, but then John claude finds himself in the company of orphans whose fathers were the ones who killed his family. So he's in a room with people who you might think become his lifetime nemesis. But thank God that the people of compassion taught these young orphans the ways of Christ. And John Claude, these are his own words. He says, I learned love from compassion. Love, love, love. It's a word taught every time in the compassion program love each other as God loves everyone, and decided to give his own son. Later on, he would, he would graduate and then start his own organization called Best Family Rwanda. And this was an organi organization dedicated to helping the poor and also the orphan children. And he made the conscious decision to not only take orphans from his own people, but purposefully from the tribe that killed and murdered his family. Again, in his own words, he says, most of the children are Hutu from the families who committed the genocide. If I could not forgive, I would say no. I only help Tutsu, only genocide survivors. But I had one child sponsor in my organization whose father was in the group that killed my father. They were neighbors, and after the genocide, the father was in prison for his crime. So when I was selecting children to help, I said, bring his orphan. 
He doesn't have a father. I will be his father. That is forgiveness. You and I can learn much from this radical gospel display from these ordinary Rwandan citizens. Stories of great forgiveness and redemption. This morning, we're continuing on our summer series through parables, these truths thrown along the way, which is taking us to the parable of the unforgiving servant, found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 34. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there with me, Matthew 18, 21 through 34. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one uh, next to you, and I believe the verses will be on the screen behind me. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up to, to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have mercy on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And ceasing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Matthew chapter 18 is in the middle of a discourse, one of five discourses as we talked about last week in Matthew, and this specific discourse has to do with relationships. Really, it has to do with discipleship relationships, essentially those relationships in the church between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so just before our text, it's kind of helpful to look at the context. In verse 15, it explains how you and I should deal with someone who has sinned, someone who has offended us. In verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the whole point of verses 15 through 17 
is the goal of gaining your brother, not losing one of our own, but confronting them in their sin. And the concern is for their own heart. They have sinned, and we can't let them go on in this way. So in love, we confront them. And the instructions say that if he's unwilling to listen to us, we take two or three more. If he's unwilling to listen to them, then bring it to the church. And the whole goal, again, is gaining our brother. The concern is for the heart of the one who has sinned. And this is a merciful thing. Our text, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, switches this a bit. And it's about the danger, the very real danger of allowing personal animosity to poison the community of believers. That's what this text is getting at. The concern is now for the heart of the one who has been offended. First, it's the heart of the offender. Now it's the heart of the one who has been offended. And we see in this the reality of just how important this text is for us as a church. Because all of us gathered here this morning make up a bunch of broken, sinful individuals. And in our relationships, because of our proximity, we will always be a company of offenders and those who have been offended. That basically makes up who we are. And so the question is, where do we go from there? What do I do when I have been offended and I'm now holding on to this resentment? That's what this parable is getting at. And Jesus already in his ministry has given high profile to the issue of forgiveness. It's mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And interestingly enough, if you were to go to a Christian bookstore, you would probably find many books. If you're going to Amazon, you find many books written about the Lord's Prayer. But I thought there was one interesting thing that stood out to me is that of all the books that might be written, Christ himself only added one commentary to the Lord's Prayer, to his prayer, and that's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. The one thing he commentates is, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Almost verbatim, verse 35 in our text this morning. And so for us, this morning as a discipleship community, with a desire to make more disciples and a desire to see more disciples growing in their walk, growing in their faith, to have a, an impact in the community around us, this text must be a top priority if we're to have a future as Christ's church. And so Peter kind of teased this one up for us. And, and, and I love Peter, he's the tip of the spear. I love his personality. And so at this time in ancient rabbinical teachings, rabbis set up about three offenses as the limit for forgiving a brother. 
And so, so Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And I imagine Peter's kind of learning from this and saying, all right, Jesus, like, I, I see what you're doing. I see where this is going. I heard you when you said, don't just commit adultery, but, but don't commit adultery in the heart. Don't just not murder, but, but don't murder in your heart. So we're supposed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and they're saying three. So, so get this, Jesus. I'm going to double that plus one, and I'm going to throw this number at you that might even shock you. All right, here it is, Christ. How about seven times? And Jesus is not impressed. And we're probably not either, right? Like, I think about that. According to even Peter's generous offer, like most marriages won't get through the honeymoon phase. Amen? Because if we're honest, as great as honeymoons are, we probably come out of that thinking, what did I do? Who did, I, who did I marry? Not me, baby. That's, I hear other men struggle with this. And it's crazy, right? Jesus looks at him and says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. One of my favorite nostalgic movies, The Karate Kid, the old school Karate Kid with the original Mr. Miyagi, uh, where he's training Daniel, and, and Daniel doesn't know he's in training, so he's giving, them, giving him all these tasks, and one of them is to, to paint his fence, and he doesn't know that's going to come in handy one day, but he just sees it as a chore. And Daniel's painting this fence all day, and he looks to Mr. Miyagi and says, I'm almost done. Mr. Miyagi turns to him and says, no, no, the whole fence. And he points to his enormous garden where there's 10 times more fence, or seven times for this parable, more fences to paint. And there's this look on, on Daniel of just disgust and disappointment, like, what? I thought this was a generous thing I was doing here. I imagine that same face on Peter when Christ replies to him, not seven, but 77 times. And some translations, even in Matthew, if you have a different translation than ESV, might even say 70 times seven. And so the point here isn't to get caught up in this number. The point isn't the number. If we fixate on, fixate on it too much, we miss the whole point. This is what Jesus is doing, though. He's creating a number that is so large that it would be ridiculous to try to keep count. That's what he's doing when he says 77 times. The purpose isn't the number, but what he's teaching his disciples is that you and I as a lifestyle should have unlimited forgiveness towards our brothers and sisters. This isn't a Chipotle Frequent, frequent burrito lover's card, right? Stamp, get seven burritos, get the next one free, right? You get 77 offenses, then you're off the hook. That's not the point of this text. Essentially, this is the point. This is where this is going as we begin to unpack the entire parable. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. It's the whole point of this text. 
It's the whole point of the parable. If we take anything from this, take this. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. And in order to drive this home, Christ gives us this parable. And so because I mentioned earlier plays and Shakespeare and whatnot, why don't we go ahead and just follow that theme and look at this parable in terms of different scenes or different acts. So there's, there's three main acts, if you will, happening in this parable. Act one is the king's compassion. Act two, the servant's hardness of heart. And act three, the king's summons. And so in act one, the king's compassion. First off, we have a king and his, and his kingdom, which represents Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And, and this king has servants, represents us. And as we said last week, uh, the Greek word for servants here is oftentimes translated employees. It's very likely that the man that we're talking about here in this parable was a type of governor or, or mayor if you will, and he was given a charge to keep certain regions going well in the kingdom, to keep the king's will. And he'd been given a responsibility as well as money, money to function in his respective role, delegated to him. And something goes wrong here. Because when he comes to give an account He's got an enormous debt, 10,000 talents. And last week, we dealt with talents and understood that just one talent could be the equivalent of 20 years of wages. But last week, we dealt with like a one-talent dude, a two-talent dude, and a five-talent dude, which is still significant, but today... Well, this gets even more crazy because this man owed 10,000 talents. And if we were to do the math, and I don't, I'm hesitant to do this because the purpose isn't the number. But if we were to do the math, this might be somewhere over 200,000 years of wages. 200,000 years of wages in debt. What we should take away from this is that it is an insurmountable amount of debt, something that cannot realistically be repaid. And the debt in the parable represents our sin, your sin and my sin. It's the same debt described in the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's here where we get a true sense of the gravity of our sin. Not, not the sins of others, but our sin. The weight of it. The enormity of it. Puritan author Matthew Henry says that the heinousness of the nature of our sins can only be measured in talents. The greatest denomination that was ever used in the account of money or weight. He says, every sin of ours is a talent of lead, and this is wickedness. 
And I love that he uses that language. I love that he says every sin because the tendency for you and I might be to make less of our sin. And, and, and some of them, we might even treat them like they're cute, overlooking them. And, and sometimes overlooking the fact that it was one transgression that led to the condemnation of all men. Why? Because we sinned against an infinitely holy God. And, and so even our smallest sins, if you can call them that, are enough to damn us for eternity. So question I'm asking myself this week, question I'm asking you is, is, is ongoing repentance a continual part of your Christian walk? Do, do you still have a sense of the gravity of your sin and your neediness of Christ? Is repentance an ongoing practice daily in your walk with the Lord? Because it's easy to compare our sins to others and think, I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. And to kind of put off repentance when you do that. And right now, Netflix and, and other streaming series or, or, or networks are just banking on people's fascinations with murderers of the past. Serial killers and unsolved mysteries. There's an allurement to, to study that and learn that. And that's fine and that's great. We can do that. But, but here's the thing that I want us to, to do is as we do, recognize that the same poison in these men is the same poison in you and I. That if it were not for the restraining grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives, you and I would be far worse than ever thought imaginable. And that the only thing that separates you and I from the worm is the grace of God on our life. The only thing that restrained me from being worse than I could have been was God's grace on me. Right now, um, the film Sound of Freedom is out uh, in theaters. It's been out for a couple of weeks. Many of you have seen it. My wife and I uh, got to see it this last week, and I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, and what it did for me this week was remind me uh, of my early 20s when I, I gave myself to fighting against human trafficking. I thrusted myself into a ministry. When I heard about this and learned about it, I, I could do no other. But one of the things that was difficult as a young believer who's zealous and, and passionate, but also frustrated about this injustice, was reconciling God's grace even towards these men if he wanted. Because I heard about perpetrators who had repented, but it was hard. It was hard to imagine that, and, and as a man, probably you've, you've experienced the same thing because you're a protector at nature, right? And so you're wrestling with it. I was walking back and forth in my room like, what would I do with somebody who I knew had committed heinous sins like this? Until one day, by God's grace, he allowed me to see the gravity and depth of my own sin the things that I might call lesser sins and how it's the same poison that's in them. I felt so broken, so needy, and was further amazed at the grace found in Jesus Christ. And I have to say this because it's such an issue. Pornography, 
may be a lesser sin to capturing individuals and using them as slaves, but it's the same poison. It's the same venom. Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan author, wrote a book uh, called The Evil of Evils. I don't know if that sounds like the most attractive book to you, but it's a book uh, about the, 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 the gravity of sin. And he, and he says this, As in a tree, there is more sap in the arm of the tree than in the sprig. But the sprig has the same sap as the arm of the tree. And it all comes from the same root. So though there's uh, more venom in some gross sins than in others, yet all sins have the same sap and the same venom. Galatians 3.22 says, but the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. And that's you and I. That's where we stand. That's us before the king. And in verse 25, he says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And it seems like for the first time, the servant is actually concerned with his debt and how foolish he is to think that he could pay this back. Like you and I know that he can't. It's foolishness to think that he can. It's foolishness to think that you and I could pay back the crushing debt of sin upon us. We can't any more than a spider's web can stop a falling boulder. It's impossible. So we see here the master's compassion. And I love the Greek word for compassion because it goes so much further beyond what you and I might think. Like compassion to the Hebrews always dealt with the visceral region, the inner parts, deep-seated, moving love and affection towards. That's why we have songs like, um, sorry to go here with the cheesiness, but have you ever loved someone so much it made you cry? That's why we feel emotions that feel so overwhelming inside of us. We just got to shout. Or, or it's why when you hear bad news, you feel a pain in the pit of your stomach. That's the type of compassion that we're talking about here that the king gives him. And the king takes the bill and he deems every penny paid tears it up. He doesn't look at it and say, hey, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you that. You got to work this one off though, bro. Can't do that. No, takes the whole thing and deems it done. He cancels the Everest of his debt. And what this tells us from this parable is that though our sins are great, they're insurmountable. Christ can forgive them. Do you believe that this morning? That no matter how great your sin might be, Christ can, is able to, and is willing to grant mercy if you bring your sin before him in humility. Therefore, 
It's not the size of the sin that's the determining factor here. It's the size of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, which is greater than our sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so because of that, we should heed the words of Christ in Matthew 10, 25, when he says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And as we move on to act two, we'll see if that's the case with the servant's hardness of heart. Verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and ceasing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, a denarius at this time was about a day's wages, so a 100 denarius, 100 days wages, is not an insignificant amount. But the point in this is showing that Our sins towards one another, though they may be significant, are incomparable to our sins to a heavenly God. And so what this is not saying is, is what it's not doing is giving us an excuse to say, hey, get over it. After all, this is a light offense here. That's not a cop-out. But what it is saying is that when offended, we should make light of it. We should prefer to make light of our neighbor's wronging of us. And this parable is, is, is really interesting to me because as I read it, I imagine that, that some of you felt this type of anger towards this servant. Like at reading it through, you might want to just shout and say, unjust man, how could you be this way? And I think the shock is intended in it. And it brings a remarkable resemblance as a parable that was given to David. If you're not familiar with this, David, who commits adultery and then murders in order to cover up his sin, is going on with his life, living in his secret sin. And he thinks he's out. He thinks he's in the clear until the Lord gives Nathan the prophet discernment. And so Nathan approaches David and says to him, David, I have a story for you. David says, go for it, man. And Nathan says, there was, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man had all kinds of sheep, cattle, land, everything at his disposal. But the poor man had only one thing, and that was this little baby you, a little baby lamb. And though it was all he had, he loved it. He nurtured it. He cared for it. The lamb ate from his table, slept with him and his children. He loved it like a daughter. So one day, the rich man has a visitor and he wants to cook a meal for him. And so rather from taking from his plentiful stock. He robs the poor man, takes his lamb, slaughters it, and feeds it to his guests. And David's anger is kindled, and he shouts out, surely the man must die. And Nathan looks at him and says, 
You are the man. And David's humbled. The story kind of has the same effect, or it should. It's intended to have the same effect on us. Because if we're honest, we are the man. We are the man. Every time we withhold forgiveness from any brother or sister, we are the man. And it isn't just an unwillingness to forgive. It goes beyond that. It's a choking. It's a threatening. As I said before, unforgiveness is never a standalone sin. It is a breeding ground for bitterness, wrath, anger, jealousy, content, everything we're called to put off the works of the flesh. And so it's not to say that offenses aren't real. It's not to say that offenses aren't painful. I mean, some of you here have, have gone through incredibly difficult days. It's not necessarily to make light of them. And some of those things we, we have to walk through with other believers, elders, counselors, who, who point us towards the gospel, who help us process these situations well, people that point us to the gospel like the compassion ministers did with the Titsis tribe and remind us of the love of God. And so because forgiveness can be so difficult, God gives us good reasons to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We also forgive because God crushed his son for our forgiveness. Colossians 2.14. He did that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, so the Christian's motivation to forgive is that he or she has been forgiven way more than any offense that has been towards us, and that's our motivation. Husbands, fathers, are you harsh, critical towards your wife, your children's shortcomings? Who are you in this story? Are you the gracious king or the unforgiving servant? Like, I'm hit between the eyes this week with this parable. Because I see in myself the natural draw towards being the unforgiving servant over the gracious king. Like, that's the natural bent, if we're honest. And so, like, gr growing up as a kid, I, I, I started to develop this, this OCD tendencies mixed in with a, with a little bit of Tourette's. And so it turned into just an interesting combination. But I, I remember loathing napkins on the table. Like, I hated to see it. It would bug me. And so God, in his grace, um, blessed me with a wife who would grow me in that in sanctification. And so occasionally there's a napkin here or there, and I totally got permission for using this analogy learning. And so God's torn me apart this week of being like, instead of seeing that and getting angry and frustrated, things aren't going my way, I got to do this again. It's like, no, no, why don't you pray for her? 
Thank God that he's given you what he's given you. Take it as an opportunity. Pray for her heart. Pray for her joy. Let that be a reminder that you've been blessed. It's not my natural tendency. Right? I want to take that thing. I'm like, I'm going to throw it away for her, but I'm going to wave it around. I'm going to march to the trash can, stomp on it, and throw it away, make her know my frustration. And what am I doing when I do that? I'm choking her. I'm not being gracious. I can praise God for his grace, but refuse to be gracious towards our wives. Praise him for his mercy and be merciless in our parenting. Wives, are you harsh or unforgiving towards your husbands? Are you harboring resentment or bitterness in your heart, choking him in your heart? And one thing that we don't often realize is that forgiveness can be spiritual warfare. And I think that's one of the reasons why it can be so difficult Forgiveness can be spiritual warfare. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Forgiveness may be one of the hardest things you and I ever do in our lives. For some of you, it may be one of the most difficult, challenging things. And here's one thing that I'm sure of, is that Satan hates forgiveness. In fact, his name in Revelation, Revelation 12, 10, is the accuser. It says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. This is satanic activity. He relentlessly accuses morning, afternoon, evening, night, hurling our sins like stones against us. Are we accusers? Or are we forgivers like Christ? Forgiveness defies his life's work. Forgiveness is hostility towards his schemes. Because for us as believers, we're called to be peacemakers. Forgiveness is an act of making peace, made possible by the cross of Christ. And so you and I have this amazing privilege of being Christ-like, in this attribute of forgiveness, being forgiving. Forgiveness leads to healing. Healing like what's happening in Rwanda today, where the gospel's being on display in incredible ways. The story that I told about John Claude is one of many stories of radical forgiveness. And the gospel is on display in remarkable ways. So perhaps for you and I, if, if forgiveness is a part of spiritual warfare, perhaps the most effective way for us to engage in spiritual warfare is not necessarily to, to shout, raise our voice, and, and blow a chauffeur, but to be more eager and more willing to forgive. Psalm 1911 
Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. But if we're too proud or bitter to hold out the hands of forgiveness, God will withdraw his. And this is the frightening part of this parable. If we refuse to forgive, he will hold our every sin against us, and eternity will not be long enough to repay the debt. His wrath will not be satisfied still. And so his fellow servants see what is happening. They're grieved, and they bring that grievance to the king. And we see in this last act, the king's summons, verses 32 through 35. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is interesting because we see here that the king was willing to forgive an insurmountable amount of debt. But what he was not willing to forgive was refusing to be merciful as he was merciful. Basically says to him, if you're determined to insist upon your rights, then you must have them all. The debt is back on you. The forgiveness which was freely granted now being withdrawn. And it's worse, the punishment's worse here because in the first part where it says jailers, that's an accurate translation. But here in the second part where he says to give them to the jailers, that word has been softened. It literally means tormentors. Given to the tormentors for eternal torture and punishment. And his unwillingness to forgive essentially showed that he was never truly humbled. He was convinced of his debt, like we might be. He was convinced that it existed. He knew it was there. He saw it, but he was never truly humbled. He was never truly broken over it. Therefore, his life never looked any different. The smoke of his misfortune had cleared. He seemed interested in it for a while, but once the dust settled, things got a little bit better. He was off doing his own thing. Marshall Seagal of Desiring God says, to withhold forgiveness is not only to join Satan in his wickedness, but it is to be left with Satan and his wickedness, miserable, unforgiven, and cast into outer darkness. And Christ says this will be the same fate if we choose not to forgive our brother or sister from the heart. And so the question must be asked, what, what, uh, what does that mean? What does it look like to forgive someone from my heart? And that can be a little bit difficult to explain, but, but I believe it looks like releasing them and the resentment that you might have towards them. It's first seeing your sin rightly, and then from that place, desiring that this sin that they've offended you with not be held against them. You begin to view them like the king compassionately, mercifully. You find in yourself an ability to pray for them, to wish them well, to serve them, to love them, to even maybe one day lay down your life for them. 
this is what forgiving from the heart might look like. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is being stoned to death. He looks up to heaven and prays, Lord, do not hold this against them. I believe that's what forgiveness of the heart may look like. So the question for us is, who have we held in the prison cell of our own hearts? Who have we not released and allowed forgiveness to play its part in healing and blessing? Like John Cloud, his father killed my father but now he's fatherless. I will be his father. This is forgiveness. Your takeaway this morning is what I've said already. This is the main idea of this text. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. Freely we have received. Freely we are to give. The power to forgive was bought for us by Christ on the cross. This not only enables our forgiveness, but gives us the grace and the ability to be a forgiving people. Let's pray.